0: Good morning good afternoon and good evening wherever you are and whenever you are you're back on the asian highway podcast network this is another episode of erased welcome back today is june the 12th this is your uh, one of your hosts pimo coming to you from austin texas joining me uh on this saturday morning is dana miller good morning dana
1: good morning
0: it's just going to be the two of us today. So we'll be uh, bringing to, to you some more environmental news as we do every week. First of all, apologies for being out of commission for the past two weeks. Uh, I had a death in the family and we had a bunch of other scheduling conflicts, but we are, are back online for another episode. This is episode eight. And today, Dane and I will be doing a series of uh, quick fire news topics. We had uh, curated 10 topics to talk about today. And I will do everyone the favor of letting everyone know and tease what these topics are uh, in, in brief format. And then Dana and I will jump right into it. And here's our order today. So you know what we'll be chatting about. Uh, we will be talking about the, the recent shark fin ban. Also be talking about uh, pulling the plug on Keystone XL. There's also the the mega drought coming up, what was summer around the corner. Also talking about a a Hawaii bill that's focused on tourism and the environment. There's an effort by the Canadian government to stave off uh, the dwindling population of the Pacific salmon. A cargo ship in Sri Lanka has, uh, has been sunk underwater, and what are the environmental implications of that? Carbon dioxide, meanwhile, the levels of carbon dioxide are 50% higher than pre-industrial levels. And so what does that mean? And then our final three topics of the of, of this episode, disaster rate favoring white people, climate change and retirement, and also the upcoming G7 summit. So that's kind of our agenda. Uh, Dana, we're going to leave with you. Our first topic of the day, our first quickfire topic of the day is the shark fin ban. Dana just... just for our audience, so we know Dana is actually quite the expert on sharks, so it's very fitting that she leads this conversation and lets us know what's going on. So, Dana, what about tell us about this ban? What does it mean, and why has it been reported enough?
2: You know what? That's very troubling that it hasn't been reported. I've only seen this story on on a few smaller environmental news networks. Um, I think The Guardian may have reported on it, um, but small kind of seed food and um, oceanic websites. But aside from that, it hasn't gotten very much traction in the media. Um, but essentially, a few days ago, the U.S. Senate passes uh, the Shark Fin Sales Elimin- Elimination Act, so the SFSEA. Um, so this moves on a commercial ban on the trade of shark fins and products containing shark fins. Um, so they ended up passing it, sorry, on June 8th as a part of a broader legislation legislative package, um, which is part of the US Innovation and in Competition Act um so the bill will now head down to the US house where both chambers chambers will negotiate the final form of the package um but this is hu- this is absolutely huge um and i really it it i question why this hasn't gotten more traction in the media because this is such a positive news story
0: here's one thing i'm kind of curious about and and this is something i i i kind of picked up on my fishing uh, my my days covering fishing and I was always under the impression, and maybe I was wrong on this, or maybe I didn't fully understand it, but I was under the impression that catching shark in general within U.S. waters is illegal. And you know, I I'm curious if that is the case. How does this, how does how would this law enhance things?
2: So I believe it was just within U.S. waters, but it did not include the actual sale of fins, like the fishing of sharks within U.S. waters. So there was a huge loophole there. Uh, Um, So now that kind of closes that loophole. Um, Yeah. And and there's a really strong bipartisan support for the legislation. Um, You know, as we've seen more and more in the media, people paying more attention to protecting the Earth's oceans. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just like such a wasteful and cruel practice. Right. Um, and yeah, and, and it's just giving like the respect that, that, you know, the oceans deserve and these animals deserve under federal law.
0: You know, I'm I'm reading here in one of the, in, in one of the few articles that are out there about this, uh, it seems like the only real opposition, uh, for this bill came from actually members of the fishing industry. And it appears that their argument is simply as, oh, the country's doing a good job of managing shark fisheries anyway, so why do we need this? How is that a flawed argument? <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, well, that, that doesn't make sense to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah every,
2: everything can always be improved, right? Right.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of that's kind of the point I'm, I'm I think kind of, thinking of,
2: yeah. I think their argument is that it it wouldn't have very much impact on global trade, but that's not really our concern.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: anything to make things more difficult, you know, you know, will it increase illegal illegal activity? Probably, but such is with anything when anything is outlawed, you know, drugs, anything really. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So
0: I'm, I'm reading. I guess a couple of people that are uh, involved with uh, the bill is a senator, as a representative from Texas, of all places. Yep. And a Democrat. A rep- and then another representative from the Mariana Islands, which is a U.S. territory. So it's pretty. Yeah, cool
2: Republican and a Democrat. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's pretty cool to see that this truly is a bipartisan attempt, and you know and which is more reason why you would you'd want a a proposal like this to to kind of have some some play in the news to show like you know what we're not always bickering there there are plenty of issues where you know both sides kind of come together and 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 make something happen
2: so just for a bit of background, each each year globally, um, 73 million shark fins end up on the global market. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. contributes to this demand by importing fins um, with about 540,000 pounds imported uh, in 2017 alone from around the world. Mm -hmm. So it is quite a strong, um, quite a, you know, a very bad problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are about a dozen states including california illinois maryland that have similar bans on buying and selling already in effect um so within the state so this would just be you know a federal a federal initiative
0: right okay well that's huge news and stuff definitely worthy of leading uh, this podcast episode Uh, let's let's go to our next quick hit which is also a, a major news item and it's it's been a decade in the making to get to this point and we're talking about the, the keystone XL pipeline and a few days ago on wednesday so this is about three days ago that the company that's behind that pipeline had pulled the plug on it so tc energy which is that company i'm referring to they suspended construction.
2: canadian company
0: <laughs> yeah right the canadian company and we'll get to that in a second uh and so yeah they, 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 they suspended construction back in january they officially pulled the plug on this pipeline that starts in Canada and navigates its way down to the United States.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, just for perspective, TC Energy had started construction of this pipeline, and 300 miles of it has already been built. It's cost about $8 billion already. And so basically, what this pipeline would have done is it would have taken oil from Alberta, which is mm-hmm. a in province, to the US Gulf Coast. And environmentalists and others have opposed this pipeline because of some of the environmental effects for example you know the oil sands crudes you know you got which is unhealthy uh, the amount of processing required for the oil uh, which would then result in greater greenhouse gases uh, so th- these are just some of the things uh, that would have uh, <clears throat> that would have harmed the environment you know you, you get you get supporters on the other side who would say oh this would this would give jobs but I always care that, well, just just because you have a job doesn't mean it's good for the world. Um, You know, you could have a job killing people, but it's a job, so let's keep it, right? (laughs) Just because because it's a job doesn't mean it's good. Um, So this is kind of where we're at. You know, the pipes, like I said, the pipeline, some of it already built, but it's now dead. And obviously, this is a win for environmentalists and climate activists, Uh, a bit of a defeat for the oil industry. So Dana, I kind of want to get your initial thoughts about about what happened.
2: Yeah, so I think it's incredible. Um, Obviously, there needs to be safe ways to go about halting the project to make sure that, you know, there's no further damage done. Um, I know Indigenous groups want him to nix the Line 3 pipeline, so I guess that's what's next coming down, down the line, but it's it's definitely such a, such a win for the environment, as you said, after more than 10 years and, um, $8 billion that this is now canceled. And I think you're totally right. There's, there's no real reason for this. Um, there's no benefit. It's just not necessary. And it's just so harmful for the environment. Um, but yeah, like I mentioned, the line three pipeline expansion in Minnesota is kind of what's up next. And that's what they're urging Biden to cancel um, these other cross-border fuel, uh, fossil fuel expansion projects.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, yeah, I think the fight is far from over, especially for, you know, these indigenous communities, um, climate activists, scientists. I think they have so much more to go, but this is definitely a huge win. Um you know, since 2008 up until this point. And I think it's just such great news.
0: And, and, and just to your point about line three, it looks like there's already, there's already protests happening in Minnesota near that pipeline. So, and line three is being brought ab- or brought on or at least attempted to be brought online by this company called Enbridge. So if anybody wants to look them up, uh, that is a company that's behind that. And just, just to add a little more detail here to, to, the, to, to, the, to the pipeline that was now, to the of pipeline that's now next. So mm-hmm. it was in 2008, so it's actually been 13 years uh, in the making.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: the original proposal uh, was that this pipeline would carry 830,000 barrels of crude oil a day from right. Alberta through the U.S. Great Plains into refineries on the Texas Gulf Coast. And... This project needed a, a presidential permit from the State Department to, to, in order mm-hmm. to happen. And of course, we know back in January, President Biden, shortly after taking office, did not get behind it. He nixed it itself, which kind of set up the stage for what happened this week. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it's, it, it, and this was fought in Nebraska, this was fought in many places around the country. And uh, Nebraska, in Nebraska specifically, this was a big deal because there was concern that leakage from the pipeline would uh, contaminate the local waters.
2: Uh, yeah, so um, the degradation of land and water resources. So um, the, ma- the, ma- the major concern is tailing ponds or sorry, tailings ponds. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just toxic waste from mining mm-hmm. and tar sands that can really sicken communities and wildlife. And these communities, these Aboriginal communities, depend on the land to survive. So um, it's just such a a great win. Um, You know, there's so much damage that's already been done, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: which is so sad. So I really hope that there's significant money and thought into how this project is ended and kind of restored. Um, And I just just hope... uh, I hope things I hope things can kind of turn around and we can see these sort of cancellations and and halts to destroying the the earth.
0: For sure. <laughs> we've led with two somewhat positive stories. We're gonna to have to shift into drought, specifically mega drought. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, we're almost in mid-June, which means summer's pretty much here. I mean the official official day is June twenty-first, but like for example, I'm in Austin, and the weather's already in the mid nineties like consistently so summers effective here weather wise, which means it's a great time to talk about drought, but this is not this part of our this part of our show right now isn't necessarily positive, so Dana, do you want to lead us on discussion on you know drought in the western United States what is it here to stay, how are states adapting kind of what's what's the situation right now with with water levels?
2: yeah, absolutely um So we're in a mega drought, as I'm sure everyone is well aware. Um, Water is increasingly scarce in the Western US specifically, where um, 72% of the region is in in severe drought and 26% is in exceptional drought. And populations are, of course, booming in this area. Um, Lake Mead's water level has dropped to its lowest point in history. Um, Trees are dying. Riverbeds are empty. I don't know if you saw the Utah governor asked residents to pray for rain. I don't think we can pray our way out of this, um, but there's a few different things that have impacted this. It's insufficient monsoon rains last summer and low snow packs over the winter that left states like Arizona, Utah, and Nevada without the typical amount of water they would need and forecasts for the rainy uh, summer season don't show promise. So it's not it's not looking good specifically for that area, but across the country, um, the past two decades have been the driest or the second driest in the last 1,200 years in the West, um, and this has been posing existential questions about how to secure a livable future in the region, which is quite scary. I mean, especially for people now who are who are our age, but for their children or their children's children, it's quite a severe situation. Um, and that's, that's essentially what's been going on. You know, Las Vegas is home to 2.2 million and it just gets over four inches of rain in a good year. And that's going down significantly. Um, 90% of their water comes from the Lake Mead from Lake Mead. Um, so this is quite a severe situation and this has been getting quite a bit of traction in the media.
0: Yeah. And so the Let's flesh out that Vegas situation. A Vegas situation, a little more. I mean, you know, Vegas, Vegas, as we know, Las Vegas, as many might know, is 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 a fast growing city. If I remember this stat specifically: it is it was a fastest it's the fastest growing city that was established after the year nineteen hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, most big cities in America had been established prior to nineteen hundred, so Vegas is the country's newest, youngest, biggest city. And here's, you know, you're, you're talking about the 90% of the water coming from Lake Mead. That uh, that, me, that lake is, is effectively a reservoir that's created by the Hoover Dam on, on Colorado River. And right now that that lake is only 36% full. I mean, which is not for a city of 2.2 million people, that isn't a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And nope. you know, there was a, a, an expert who was talking about this, about the population. I mean. Seven hundred and fifty thousand people have moved into vegas this decade i mean sorry right it starts this century since 2000 and so you have that many people going into town and the amount of water in the colorado river which is which is what feeds lake mead has went down 23 percent so people going up water levels going down and even though water consumption is down 40 percent you know year over year um there's still a concern of whether that lake will be able to eventually sustain the people who live there and anybody who's been in las vegas uh, including people like you and i we, we we know all too well that is one dry city especially in the oh yeah and yeah. so you know their conservation might not be enough we may have to find new ways especially with a lot with limited rain i mean you, like you said, Dana, 4% on a good year in, in Vegas. That's in a good year. It's far I, less I on average or worse year, right?
2: And I, I don't think people really realize, like, it's not just the water you're using in your home. It's for agriculture production, right? So okay. all of Arizona and Nevada rely on Lake Mead for, for your food that you eat every day.
0: Yeah. I believe this line here. There's a new law that will declare more than 30% of the grass illegal in Southern Nevada. Like, basically, you can't have grass. I mean, that's how bad it is. Yeah. That's insane. I mean,
2: that, you know, I see our neighbors here in Florida watering their grass when we have gotten barely any rain. And my husband and I just look at each other like, what do you do? Like, it's just not important. Just let the grass be burned be brown conserve water
0: or do a, a drought tolerant lawn i mean exactly you know, there, there are ways now you, you could you know i mean i, I see this in, in phoenix for example you basically could redo your lawn where you don't need water you know it, it's not like it's, it's 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 not rocket science you know mm-hmm. so uh but yeah we're, we are in a mega drought and we do have to figure out a way to uh to manage our water and to make sure that you know we have because there there are cities i know california for example that they actually have run out of water like there is no water in eastern portions of eastern california which is yeah that's
2: that's a good kind of segue here into like what happens now and where do these states go with lake mead and like what will happen if these water levels are so low and I was reading that the federal government may need to declare a water shortage, which then means they they essentially cut water supplies from Lake Lead, uh, sorry Lake Mead, if the water level continues to fall, which it is expected to do so into 2023, or at least until the fall, which is the end of agriculture season. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, like this would affect water supplies um, from Arizona, Nevada, and the Republic of Mexico also. So
0: yeah all right oh, well, this is a good time.
2: Situation. yeah especially. we'll uh we'll definitely keep the federal government's expected to make a decision in august so we'll definitely keep everyone posted on this uh, news story
0: For sure so let's talk about now a, a very interesting topic this is in hawaii and it's involving the hawaiian tourism authority and tourism and the environment basically the state is trying to limit tourism because of the effects it is having on the state's environment. Specifically, uh, the concern is that so many people are coming to the state that it's actually harming the state's trails, the state's beaches, and its sacred sites. In 2019, so this is the last full year before the pandemic, Hawaii had a record 10 million tourists come to its, uh, to, to its islands.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's great from a business and tax perspective, right? But then again, we talk about well, how is this harming the trails? How is it harming the beaches? I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. 10 million people on a state as small as Hawaii. I mean, these are like a handful of tiny islands. Right. You know, uh, the human impact is going be, to be difficult, especially when you add the people, because millions already live there. But 10 million people are, are more, I would assume, I, I don't know how big Hawaii's population is, but I'm assuming it's, it's around the size or maybe more, than the natives who live there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of people.
2: I think it's good to premise this news story just with in April, Hawaii became the first state to declare a climate emergency.
0: Oh yeah, th- thank you. I was I was uh, you know, that was going to be the next part of it. So yes, they they were they were the first state in the country to to declare a climate emergency, and mostly because then, now they want to figure out a way to manage its tourism. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is to me like you know. Right, right now, we're looking at this as a microcosm as to Hawaii, but this does raise the larger question of tourism in general. I mean, you know, we, we, we hear, for example, the, the the harmful impacts of cruising. You know, going on a cruise, um, right? You know, and so th- th- this is. I want to make very clear this isn't limited to to Hawaii, but this this this, this proposed limitation on on tourism, which you know, I I don't, I'm not quite sure how this will fully go into effect, uh, other than, you know, there, there might be some cut in financing and funding to, to, to a few things. Uh, that's one, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some organizations and cultural programming might be cut, uh, basically de incentivizing people to come to the state. Uh, you know, I mean, it, you're always gonna have a, a group of people who, a group, uh, millions of people who want to come to the beaches. But I guess the, the logic is if we get if, if the state, it's the state's logic is, hey, if we could limit the amount of other things that are offered in the state such as cultural programming and art events or whatever, if we limit these things, this will de-incentivize people to come to the state and therefore maybe we could, you know, help save the environment. And I guess my question is though, I mean, it, it sounds like a great idea and I'm asking this genuinely, is this really the best strategy? I mean, there is, there is public opposition to, to this. You know, and you know, I understand they there, you know, obviously having 10 million people come to a state in any given year will have consequences. But I'm curious if there's a way to balance this. Like where where is the, the harmony of like, all right, we could still have tourism, but done in a way that's sustainable and isn't harmful to the environment.
2: You know, it's it's interesting as we're discussing this. I don't know if you know, but Machu Picchu in Peru has introduced had introduced in 2012 restrictions in number of visitors within a year Mm -hmm. Um, and people have to get permits and passes and there's you know there's a, a large kind of process to being able to visit such a beautiful and and you know environmentally something that we need to protect an area that really needs to be protected this kind of area and i think hawaii needs to do something similar it's very different from you know packing up and going to visit new york city right. these, these beaches and these islands people go there they it's just i mean i'm sure i don't know if you've been to hawaii or not but I, we've been quite a few times and um just the lack of respect from not all tourists but enough of just trash gar- you know garbage everywhere going off the trails where you're not supposed to um, you know, parking in places you're not supposed to. So it's very inconvenient, inconveniencing, um, locals, just all sorts of different things, you know, driving off of, off of trails and onto roads and, and paths where you're not supposed to be driving, doing off-roading, disturbing wildlife. Um, there, it just goes on and on and on. And I think that there's a level of respect and I think that, you know, Hawaii should introduce a visitor limit and there needs to be, you know, a lot more severe penalties for people who are littering or just being disrespectful, destroying property. The list goes on.
0: Yeah, for sure. So let's transition now to our next topic. And this is in kind of in your neck of the woods, uh, Dana, because you, you, are, you are a Canadian. And so this is uh, happening in Canada. The, the, the country is launching a strategy to stave off collapse of pacific wild salmon
2: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: so this seems like a a very ambitious project dana uh what do you know about it and uh how how real is this
2: yeah absolutely so canada on um this past tuesday launched a 60 647.1 million which is about 535 million US dollars, um, a strategy to restore Pacific wild salmon stocks that are on the brink of collapse due to climate change, habitat degradation and harvesting pressures. Um, so the uh, sorry, the investment first announced in the federal budget in April, so that was April 19th, will be the largest ever government contribution to efforts to save the species, which has a huge cultural and ecological significance, especially on the West Coast. Um, so many Pacific wild salmon are on the verge of collapse, as I mentioned, um, and bold action is needed, um, if they want a fighting chance at survival. So that was from fisheries minister, Bernadette Jordan. Um, so yeah, so this, our government's Pacific salmon strategy initiative is what it's called. Focuses on stronger science, habitat restoration, stabilizing stabilizing and growing the salmon populations modernizing fisheries, which is very important. we've discussed it we've discussed this before on this podcast and then deeper coordination between stakeholders and then indigenous peoples and fish the fisheries industry. Um, so yeah, this is great news. Um, as we know, warming oceans due to climate change are altering the marine food web. We've also discussed this many times on this podcast so, I think that this is a great uh, effort by our government, and it does show real action um, to help the oceans.
0: And this is one thing, speaking as an American, that I appreciate. Uh, I'm reading here that the the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in Canada actually has a legal obligation to prioritize salmon fishing access to indigenous people, which
1: is great,
0: so it it's, it's amazing to see that such a, an obligation exists. So that's one. Another thing I want to mention, and, and this is why a, 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 this effort actually matters. For those who don't know, Pacific salmon actually take a long time to, to reproduce. Right, but five years. Four to five years is their cycle. So, you know, when we're talking about a species that's on the verge of, of, of disappearing and that species has a four to five year cycle, This is why we need that. This this, something. This is needed now, because literally, if we wait another year, you're going to get to a point where you might not be able to give the salmon enough time to reproduce. Exactly. So you effectively a five-year, a minimum a five-year plan. And so you know, we'll see how that plays out. And hopefully, this this is this initial this is an initial investment. Hopefully, and Mm -hmm. hopefully, it does actually result in, in fish coming back. There have been examples of this, of, of something like this working in California. California, many years ago, had set out to replenish uh, sea bass, white sea bass and black sea bass. And they, so they mm-hmm. started a, a, basically a, a pen program and many yacht clubs and fishing organizations bought into it. The, the pen, the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the sea bass population hasn't fully recovered yet, but the numbers are going up. And so if the trends continue, we will see, you know, in the next few years, the sea bass population off the California coast return to levels where it was 40 years prior. Incredible. So there's definitely, and there's there's been a couple other examples of, of California, you know, saving species through strategies similar to what Canada is doing. So there's definitely precedent and, you know, as long as Canada is committed to this, I, I do see this thing working. So, so, so kudos to, to Canada and as the resident Canadian, uh, you know, <laughs> do you want to give yeah. any, any personal commentary on this?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been really sad to see in recent years, um, first nations fisheries have not been able to fulfill their, their harvest allocations because of these low salmon returns. So it's just very encouraging to see that um canada's department of fisheries and Oceans is taking action and the federal government's taking action um, in the budget so it's just yeah i i'm gonna follow along over the next five years four to five years and see how the government kind of adjusts and and you know ebbs and flows with what's needed and i'm just excited to see if the salmon kind of regain their populations
0: right well on, on the other end of the spectrum on the other side of the world in the tiny country of sri lanka which is just south of the, t- the southern tip of india mm-hmm. there's a major natural disaster well not a natural disaster this is a man-made disaster a cargo ship that was i believe at the one of the ports in colombo which is the capital of sri lanka uh had a had a leak a chemical leak and they had asked to dock at, at, at the port here. And fast forward to, to uh, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, the cargo ship has since been sunk and it is considered the largest environmental disaster in Sri Lankan history. Basically the ship came in and it was uh, it's a ship registered to Singapore, it's called the Express Pearl. And they wanted to take anchor to fix the leak, but they couldn't fix the leak. This leak is basically contaminating the waters around Sri Lanka. And it is expected Mm -hmm. to contaminate the water for years. And the reason why this is, it's already bad enough just in general for the ecosystem to have chemicals widespread into the water from a ship. Right. But Sri Lanka, on top of that, if you have to add one more layer to all this, Sri Lanka is a fishing country. It's an economy that is heavily contingent or heavily reliant on fishing. So right. when you're having toxins literally harming or killing off the sea life, the marine life, you're also taking away the livelihoods of millions of people.
2: You're starving so, people. You're yeah. starving
0: people, right, exactly. You know, And so uh, this leak, has, it, it, it might have even, you know, I mean... Basically, these, these chemicals, are, it's burning and it's sinking into the water and this oil leak is just, it's literally going to devastate the fishing industry. It's threatening so many people. And like I said, this will take at least five years, maybe a decade to, to recover from. And that's just to get back to the chemicals not being there anymore that's not including the recovery to return back economically. I mean, we saw the impacts of what a pandemic had in one year. Imagine going, this, going through this for five, five, six, seven years, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is what's happening here. So now, and then, you know, economically, you know, there are debts that need to be paid off that now aren't going to be paid off because there's no revenue coming in. So, Absolutely.
2: Yeah, it's this so- is where we're at.
0: Any thoughts, Dana? I mean, what, what, what's your take on what happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the plastic in the oceans from this from this disaster is already quite bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the chemical pollution, as you mentioned, is what's going to affect the country for decades. Um, the most dangerous chemicals on board: nitric acid, sodium dioxide, copper, lead. Um, and I know that local marine life has already been affected. There is turtles dolphins, fish that have been washing up dead on the beaches already. Um, some of them have been turned a greenish color. So suggesting that the contamination with the metals and chemicals are already, it's already happening. Um, so they're, they're predicting that, you know, some of these smaller fish will just die off. And then the larger fish, um, you know, they'll just become accustomed to the chemicals and they'll just you know, kind of become part of the, the sea life, um, which is, yeah, so it's... yeah,
0: which is sad because, which is, if you really think about it, let's take that, let's take what you just said one step further, you know, let's just say the the fishermen that are able to catch these big fish, catch them and then, you know, they're going to put them in the market and that right. fish comes to our plate. We're basically eating chemical, infe- chemically infested fish.
2: And it's important to know, like even Australia's, um, Oceans and Atmosphere uh, Department has been speaking to the BBC and to, you know, people are obviously very concerned because waste and toxins and plastics don't follow geographic boundaries. So it's not like they're just limited to that area. They can certainly go to other countries, um, just b- being carried by wind, waves, currents. Um, mm-hmm. These things change seasonally. So this is very much a, a issue for this entire area of the of the globe. um,
0: Sri Lanka is positioned geographically right by, I mean, it's literally, uh, it's it's the equivalent of Cuba to the U.S. It it is on on the edge of the second largest country in the world, population-wise. It is not too mm -hmm. far away from Bangladesh and Indonesia, which are among the top 10 countries, population-wise. And, you know, it's it's not too far from Africa. It's not too far from the Middle East. Large population centers are within a two-hour flight, three-hour flight of Sri Lanka. So, yeah. you know.
1: Madagascar. Madagascar, yeah.
0: I mean, so, you know, you're, you're looking at, you know, the repercussions of this will not be limited to, to just one tiny island country. It, right. It, it's spread out to, to million, hundreds of millions of people if it really plays out.
2: So I guess to to end this topic, activists are urging that international experts will be crucial in the cleanup. Um, There have been cleanup, there have been shipwrecks before, but nothing like this in Sri Lanka where there's such poisonous cargo. So the country is not prepared at all for such a difficult job. Um, And then it just mentions here that the shipping company that owns the Express Pearl has commissioned an international firm to respond to the crisis. Um, specialists are on the ground in Sri Lanka, but help is, is definitely still needed. Um, and that's, that's the story. I really hope that things improve and that people can come together and, and uh, help in this situation.
0: For sure. So let's, let's hop on to our next topic. This is our seventh topic of, of, of the podcast, of this episode. I want to preface this, this next topic with a joke that uh, one of my friends would always say. He would always say, the industrial revolution was neither industrial nor a revolution and the reason i bring that up is because the industrial age is the topic part of the topic of this uh this next news item global heat car- trapping carbon dioxide is up 50 percent higher than when than prior to the industrial age which means we are we are facing warmer weather hot you know crazier air,
2: what does this
0: mean? Where are we at with, with this, the amount of carbon dioxide that we're at? And it seems like it's at a record high.
2: Yeah, so carbon dioxide levels um, have officially hit 50% higher than pre-industrial time. Um, so the annual peak of global heat-trapping carbon dioxide in the has reached another dangerous milestone, 50% higher than when the industrial age began. Um, This average rate of increases faster than ever. Um, The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said the average carbon dioxide level for May was 419.13 parts per million. So that's 1.82 parts per million higher than May 2020. So just one year previous and 50% higher than the stable pre-industrial levels of 280 parts per million. So carbon dioxide levels do peak every May just before plant life in the northern hemisphere. Um, So sucking some of that carbon out of the atmosphere and into flowers, leaves, seeds, and stems. Um, The reprieve is very temporary because of emissions of carbon dioxide from burning coal, oil, and natural gas. So this is used for transportation, electricity. And this far exceeds what plants can take in, so pushing greenhouse gas levels to new records every single year. Um, this It's setting a new benchmark and it's absolutely not in a good way um, and I think that just more work needs to be done to cut these carbon dioxide emissions. Um, you know, it's causing extreme weather as we're all aware, it's having health effects including as we've already mentioned deaths due to heat increased pollen so people's allergies um it's just a a terrible situation
0: i want to i want to mention this statistic to kind of give some more perspective to everything you're saying which is crazy so carbon dioxide can stay in the air for about a thousand years maybe more Mm -hmm. so obviously Minor changes from a year to year basis won't really change things. And the reason I mention that is because during the lockdown, uh, the pandemic that we had in the past year, yes, it's slowed transportation. Yes, travel was down and other activities down. And there was talk about how the pandemic actually had a positive impact on the environment. Well, not really. Uh, you know, it, there was basically a 7% decrease in, 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 a, in overall activity. And that decrease was too small to even dent the, uh, the effects of carbon dioxide.
1: Right. So
0: just show you that even something as impactful and, and effective as a pandemic, and I mean that in terms of like limiting people's activities, even that couldn't harm or, or, or restrict the effects of carbon dioxide.
2: Right. And I think that goes to show that <clears throat> at the end of the day, it really is these large corporations as opposed to you and I driving our car, of course, every impact, you know, everything that you can do m- makes impact. And I think that n- neither are mutually exclusive. You can want corporations to do better and you can also do better yourself. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it really does depend on these large corporations that are truly destroying the earth. And I think that that shows in that 7% decrease because that's certain, that's transportation, that's travel, that's other regular human activity that it was only 7%. Right.
0: And and just to remember, Danny, you mentioned this, but I just want to reiterate what you said that, you know, the, 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 the storms, the wildfires, the floods, the droughts, all these Mm -hmm. things are are magnified because of carbon dioxide increases and they become more frequent. They become more damaging. Uh, The oceans rise higher, become more acidic. Uh, you mentioned the deaths, there's pollen increases. I mean, I, I, being here in Austin, I hear so many people suffering from pollen allergies, and I've been hearing it's been, a, a, it's been increasing in several years, in the past few years. So anecdotally, that's happening here. You know, so just to reiterate, it's not just something, even though it's something you can't physically see with your eyes, the, the effects of, of, of carbon dioxide in the air are real, and it, it, it's, it's quickly accelerating uh, so many things that we don't want to see happening in our world.
2: Yep, the world is approaching the point where exceeding the Paris targets at entering a climate danger zone becomes almost ine- inevitable. And that's Michael Oppenheimer, um, who's at prim- uh, Princeton University. He's a climate scientist. And that's a very, you know, scary statement to make, but very true.
0: Right, so uh, let's now transition to our next one. we got three more topics to go. Mm -hmm. This one is an interesting one, and it's kind of based on uh, anecdotal stories, but it it makes a really interesting point. And the headline, this is from the New York Times, why does disaster aid often favor white people? Question marks. And the subhead reads, the federal government often gives less help to black disaster survivors and their white neighbors and the, the story leads with two uh, two stories and you know it it, it shows that uh the, a certain disaster that happened to these two people and the aid they received so this was involving fema and so uh there's uh you know two people who live in south of louisiana, louisiana. Uh, they were hit hard by hurricane laura uh, which hit last August, and both houses that these these two people live in uh, were identical. Both houses had a tree crash through their roof, and neither party had insurance. So both sides had, uh, or both parties had requested assistance from the federal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, one one person was white; the other person was black. And so what I just shared with you so far was the common story that both share. Here's where the story kind of sets apart. FEMA gave one person, this guy named Roy, I hope I'm hoping to say his last name right, Roy Basin, gave him $17,000, and he is white. They gave Charlotte uh, Biagas uh, uh, and her husband, they gave them $7,000. Uh, wow. This, couple, this, couple's, this couple's black. So... We see an exact difference of $10,000 of aid offered to people that had the same exact situation, but not receiving the same amount of aid. Now, this is one story, and we, but we can't dismiss it as one story. And I'm going to read again from the New York Times, and I quote: "A growing body of research shows that FEMA often helps." White disaster victims more than people of color, even when the amount of damage is the same. Not only do white Americans often receive more aid from FEMA, so do the communities in which they live, according to several recent studies based upon federal data. So there's clearly statistics that are showing that more that whatever happened here between these two people in South Louisiana is not an aberration; it is actually a it is the norm, and you know.
2: So you're saying that not only individual white Americans often receive more aid from FEMA, the communities in which they live also receive more funding. Right. is that correct?
0: Right, that's correct. And you know, we we talk a lot about environmental racism and you know it's we, we live in an era now where there are millions of people who will tell you racism no longer exists or you know, now we got America finally is a meritocracy, but and you know there are people who do deny that race, that there is race issues baked into the system, and I just don't understand how I just don't get how you could see this story and not see how this plays out. Mm-hmm. You know, FEMA did decline to comment on, on on this story, but there's clearly an imbalance. There's data showing that, like like we said, that white individuals and white Communities receive more money than their black counterparts or their minority counterparts, and
2: I think this kind of all goes back to how systemic racism, as we've gotten into this quite a few times, but is is embedded in property taxes. Mm-hmm. That's sort of where where you know sociologically these things begin.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And so the question is, and, and part of the point of this news story that was shared by the Times, and it's also the point in general, is how now that you're juxtaposed with what's happening with this federal aid with President Biden, who's made it a cornerstone of his administration to combat racism and also, you know, address climate change. And here you have kind of this intersection of, you know, environmental racism, where both of, the, both of Biden's priorities are kind of hitting each other out right ahead and so it's a question of what what can biden do as, as a starting point as president to kind of address this and right. i don't know if you have any thoughts about that are like what, what what would be like, if you were president what would be the what would be your first act to at least at least acknowledge that this is happening
2: so it's interesting so fema declined to comment mm-hmm. citing privacy concerns um you know it's it's such a i don't know i don't have the answer um i think, the I mean,
0: I, I think like the spot but i mean i don't think anybody has the answer
2: <laughs> yeah i think like clearly fema programs and policies need to be equitable um mm-hmm. of course a just you know disproportionate impact of disasters on marginalized communities um due to that as we're well aware um climate change and and you know, weather events are impacting marginalized communities more than ever, um, and I think this just needs to be the goal of of FEMA and these federal government programs. Um,
0: so I want to I want to give some 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 I guess flesh out this a little more, which maybe will help give some direction here. Like, right? so here is how the process actually is supposed to work. Uh, FEMA, I guess individuals or homes are, are entitled to receive up to $36,000 for homeowners. Right. Situations. Yep. But what, Which the if costs, your
2: house is totally destroyed, that's not very much money. Not
0: very much at all. Right. So even, yeah. even, even with the disparity in, in funding, like even if you're getting the top dollar, it's still not helping you that much. Right. So what FEMA does before determining how much to give you is, you know, they have contractors or FEMA themselves will come out to inspect your property. The, they'll, they'll have to make a determination if the if the damage was actually caused by a disaster, uh, and then how much do do the actually with the you know claimant actually receive? Here's where things get a little hairy and dicey. And uh, right. you know, according to New York Times reporting, there's a higher percentage of, of black residents who live in certain zip codes who are less likely to get an inspection. And if there's no inspection, then FEMA won't go fund repairs. So if it's that there's already one starting point that you're literally having inspectors who aren't going to based on likelihood aren't going to black neighborhoods
2: wow and then once and then even if they do
0: yeah and if they do so let them read this next paragraph even when disaster victims in african-american neighborhoods were able to get a damage inspection 11 percent of them had their request denied with no reason given by wow. comparison, just four percent of homeowners in white neighborhoods were denied with no reason, with no reason given. I mean, that's and then specific. I'm
2: assuming I'm assuming when if they were successful, then of course they're just getting less money.
0: Yep, yep. I mean, something five, five to ten percent less. And again, this is all statistically documented. This is not like just oh, hey, look, this is like I had a bad story. No, they're they're literally they're showing. Five to ten percent less money received, three times more people, and three times the rate of inspections being denied in black communities versus white communities. I mean, this isn't random numbers; this is real.
2: So, does this have to do with like? I'm not, you know, I am Canadian. So, does this have to do with like income, like level of income and credit scores for these grants? Um, is that what they're basing it on? I'm assuming. Um, and then, if so. In reality, if, you know, you're very well off or you're much better off than somebody else, you know, you have a greater need for the federal disaster assistance than somebody who's, who's doing much better, you know, who's more privileged than you are. So that to me doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah. So, so we, I talked about zip codes. Zip codes are actually significant because, you know, each zip code has a certain, I guess number tax So the number is either a tax base or, you know, median house income, median annual income, whatever. So it's very easy to discriminate based upon zip code. And that I include, you know, tax base in that as well. And, you know, so if you're, if you're living in a neighborhood, you know, that has a lower income base, lower tax base, a lower, you know, house value base, you know you, you're able to know right away like okay that's a poor community and you know so you, and then you have the situations where you know in these zip codes people can't afford to and buy a house and so now you, you have to connect that with the money that they're not receiving or the limited amount of money that they will get so you're basically forcing these people who have no money to begin with and now lost their home and they can't, they won't even receive any money to rebuild their home. So you're effectively keeping the values, the tax values, the, the, the resale values of these homes so re- depressed that they can't go anywhere. So even you know if these people want to get out and get to a better place, they can't.
2: So it's just, it's interesting because this is a good segue into, FEMA has a program that purchases and then demolishes damaged homes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um... And the biotes are meant to help the homeowners leave these dangerous locations. And then this then reduces future federal costs by avoiding paying for more damage in that spot. Mm -hmm. So my concern is that these homeowners are unlikely to be able to afford a home in in a safer neighborhood.
0: Exactly. 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 So though that's a bigger problem that may take more time to, to, to address. But I think in the meantime, the, the easy fix is and I guess this is one way to answer the question I asked earlier. And I'm just throwing this out there. It just might be spaghetti on a wall. But, you know, the, the, I think I think a first step would be to address the failure to go to certain neighborhoods. You know, if, if someone files a claim, the federal government has to respond doesn't matter what the zip code is. It doesn't matter what the ethnic background of the people who live there are. If there's a natural disaster in a neighborhood and two houses, different houses apply for funding, one's in a good neighborhood, one's not. Mm-hmm. FEMA has to go to both houses and they both have to judge them both the same. And if they both have, if they both are determined to, you know, get funding, it better be based upon the, dam- the extent of the damage and not the people who live in the house. I think exactly. that's I think that's a good way to start.
2: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It so shouldn't be off somebody's income. It shouldn't be off somebody's credit score. Right. And it certainly shouldn't be off of the your your race.
0: Yes, exactly. So a couple more things to kind of talk about before we wrap it up today. Dana, wanna to talk to you now about or have you kind of lead this next conversation about climate change and retirement plans. What's the connection? Are, is, is climate change actually threatening the way Americans have to go about their retirement?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, climate change is impacting retirement plans and how um, older Americans are adapting. Um, so, extreme weather like hurricanes, flooding, freezing temperatures, wildfires has prompted some to rethink where they'll spend their retirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting so it just discusses different clients um one client of uh, this insurance company this financial planner was planning to retire in Galveston, Galveston um and they weren't expecting the rising expense of flood insurance which is huge especially in Texas in the last 10 years um the average cost of Texas flood coverage is $700 per year. Premiums may be higher in area, some areas. And, of course, if you're retired and you're on a limited budget, that's quite a bit of money. Um, you know. And then, of course, we discussed this in a previous podcast where Austin suffered from the region's deep freeze and power outages. Mm-hmm. So people's pipes froze and their condos flooded. So of course this causes people to question their long-term plans in certain, certain areas.
0: Um,
2: So if you're, you know, you're thinking, Oh, is there going to be another cold snap, more, you know, home damage, displacement, of course that leads people to reconsider where they're going to live the rest of their lives after they retire. Um, So yeah, it's, it's a big issue and um, these people who track these sort of, uh, movements within people throughout the states um, have been noticing certain trends. Um, you know, declining home values may create another issue for retirees. So, some of these locations um, that have had these environmental disasters, you know, are have are now seeing a decline in home values in these areas. Um, so, yeah, this is this is something that I didn't even think about, but, you know, coastal areas that have experienced hurricanes and flooding, a lot of retirees, especially in Florida, North Carolina, um, they're now quite worried about these things that they didn't have to be, uh, you so, know, 10, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, you mentioned North Carolina, and I want to kind of go to some of the, this is one thing which you would not think about as, as an issue, but it's insurance, and, and so... This article that's in CNBC is mentioning how retirees in North Carolina have to have to contemplate the cost of homeowners insurance, which has to include coverage for wind and hail. And so, according to this report, the average cost of wind and hail insurance in North Carolina is almost seventeen hundred dollars. And that's not a, that's not a pretty penny. That's a lot of money. Um, exactly. You know, and if you live closer to the coast of North Carolina, you got to now factor in flood insurance on top of that, which could add another $739 to that. Uh, you go to the Rockies where wildfires might be common. There are, there, it's going to be hard to find insurance. You buy a house in the Rockies and you're, you're, you're in a wildfire zone. And you can't get insurance. Well, you, you spend all your retirement money on a house in the Rockies and you can't get insurance and a fire swallows it. Well, you just lost all your, you just lost all your savings. Right. That's gonna impact and affect the way you decide what to retire. So it's not as simple as like, oh, I just go to a nice weather spot. I mean, we're talking about, for example, living in places where you're spending, you know, two to three hundred bucks a month extra on insurance, or you're not getting insurance at all. And when you're retired, that's a that's a lot of money that that's going out and not coming back in.
2: Exactly it's uh it's something that i never thought that we'd have to think about but you know
0: well it just goes to show you that the environment touches every literally every aspect of our lives like every right. corner of our lives so people say oh the environment doesn't harm me oh yes it does there's there's nothing in your life that isn't that isn't somehow affected for better or for worse by the environment so this is why you know we have to share news like this because it shows you just the, 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 uh, the repercussions of, of, of anything. So the fact that your insurance bill for, at the very basic level is affected by climate change and by extreme weather, which will then affect your retirement. I mean, if that doesn't show you how it affects your life, I don't know what will. So my two cents on that. <laughs> so I guess uh, yeah, let's transition now to our last topic. Sure. And this is on the G7 summit which is taking uh, which is uh right around this time of year taking place in Cornwall and g seven for those of you who don't know is the group of seven and so they're having a big meeting here and these are the the world's biggest leaders are coming together to talk about world policy and obviously you know the environment is going to be an issue and one of the things i I want I kind of want to dive into this specifically just one of the big controversies that's happening right now is, you know, they're going to go talk about, you know, stuff like <laughs> climate change. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, they're flying in on private jets, right?
2: Boris Johnson. Uh, right.
0: Yeah. Boris Johnson, the UK right. Prime Minister, flying in on a, on a, on a private jet. And, uh, you know. I think
2: the point is, is like, so did our Prime Minister. Of course, he flew on his own plane, but he's coming from Canada. Yeah. Boris Johnson is already in the UK,
0: yeah, I mean, he could take a, a motorcade, I don't know.
2: <laughs> I don't know, a helicopter? Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So, but you know, one of these also a couple of things are being talked about at this uh, that are on the agenda at this at the summit. Obviously, there's, you know, carbon dioxide levels and, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and, and global heating. Another another thing, which obviously is a topic now because of what's happened in the past 16 months is Will we see more pandemics now? You know, it, it, is, is our environment in such a state now where what happened for the past 16 months, we, we actually have a risk of seeing that more often. That's the, the coronavirus pandemic will no longer be a, a once in a 100 year event, that this will be right. once in a five year event or once in a three year event. And, you know, that I, I, that 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 is clearly on the agenda and it's something that needs to be addressed. And just so you know, the G7, it's, you know, countries like, The United States, United Kingdom, Japan, Canada, Germany, France, Italy, the European Union, and so these are these are countries that are coming together, and you know, obviously, talking about issues such as global uh, heating and global warming and climate change and pandemic, um, they're trying to. One thing they're trying to commit to is to uh, limit temperature rises to one point five degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Uh, that's the lower limit that's actually set by, by the Paris Agreement. And uh, all these countries also have long-term targets to reach zero, net zero emissions by 2050. And also that includes cutting carbon targets within the next decade. The United Kingdom has done pretty good despite Boris Johnson's private jet flight. <laughs> uh, the United Kingdom has uh, cut 68% of its emissions uh, by 2030. And they're aiming to have seventy-eight percent cut by twenty thirty-five, and that's based upon nineteen ninety levels. The uh, the U.S. uh, is aiming to half its emissions by twenty thirty, and that's based upon two thousand five levels. The European Union, meanwhile, is aiming to cut its levels by fifty-five percent to twenty thirty, also on a nineteen ninety baseline. I almost wonder if the U.S. here is being kind of the, the 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 class clown here by. 2005.
2: 2005 levels yeah right exactly.
0: like oh why can't we go back to that right <laughs> oh,
2: <laughs> yeah right, so. I, know, I know activists and scientists are saying that this is entirely ina- inadequate um you know
1: they're well, yeah, pressuring
2: yeah. people to toughen their targets mm-hmm. um you know prior to the UN climate talks that are being held in glasgow um this november glasgow mm-hmm. and um yeah i mean i think this conversation is great i think we sort of see the same thing the same sort of discussions happening over and over it almost feels like ferris uh, what is that <laughs> that movie where he keeps reliving the same day over and over oh, groundhog day, groundhog day.
0: Like yeah <laughs> well and, and and here and you know I wanna throw this out there as well. I mean, this this kind of accentuates what we're just talking about or magnifies it. So we're we're talking about the G7 countries and hey, let's put this in perspective. There are what, at least, I mean, depending depending on your count, between 195 and 230 countries in the world, right? Right. And this is only seven. (laughs) And I, I listed those seven countries. There are two countries that are not listed in those seven. And they happen to be home to more than 2 billion people right? India and China. Now, let's talk about China. China is the world's largest emitter and second largest economy. And they are not represented in the G7. Right. And China relies on coal as part of the recovery of COVID-19, even though they have a a long-term goal to be net zero emissions by 2050. Mm -hmm. And so the G7... What, and this is why So I, I I could see why people say that what the G7 is doing is not enough because even if you're factoring what the U.S., is doing, what the U.K. is doing, whatever Canada is doing, whatever Japan, Japan is doing, right? how can you say that even those levels will put a dent into the, into, what's, into record levels of carbon dioxide when you're not even mandating China to address its issues? Right.
2: China, world. India, right? Russia.
0: Yeah, right. And the, the, these are countries that, are, that, that they might not... Eat, if they're not being if they're not being mandated by the G7 you know this is where there is a point to be made about whether this is enough and it right. isn't
2: when one country is emitting 30% of the world's total carbon dioxide right. emissions right. how you know obviously the united states is a close second but actually i don't even know if it's a close second yeah
0: yeah. So, ah. yeah. Well, <laughs> obviously, we can we we can spend hours upon hours, as I always say, talking about these off topics. But these are the the ten news briefs we spent the past hours are talking about. And uh give me a second, because I want to just kind of quickly cite the the uh, the sources here that we refer to. So we we have these news briefs from Seafood Source, NPR, NBC, Guardian, Reuters. uh Let's see, this one's from the Associated Press and the New York Times. So thank you to all those outlets for their coverage on these topics. Dana, this was a great discussion. I, I know we kind of deviated from the norm of one feature subject, but, you know, like you and I said, offline, so many things happened in the past two, three weeks. We, we, just, we just couldn't go on with that with just one or two of these things. We had to bring attention to all of them. So we hope this, uh, to the audience, we hope that this these 10 topics we brought to you were were worthy and were insightful and educates you on what's going on. Dana, any last words before we move on?
2: Yeah, maybe um, quickly run through just a couple of things you can do for climate sure. change. If We sure. have a few minutes here. Yeah. Have um, I,
0: well, what the, let's talk about, well, hey, let, uh, maybe... You can phrase it in one of two ways, I guess. What, what are just some general, you either frame, frame it as general advice or maybe what are one or two things that you would, you would probably change personally? Oh. Tell me which one you want to talk about.
2: <laughs> you know what? Maybe let's focus this week on, on what we could do better. Maybe I'll name three things that I can do better and you can okay. name three things you could do better. So I think for me, living in a more rural area, I could certainly drive less. Um, I think that's the one thing for me. I'm in an area where I don't need to drive every day. I could go out and get things that are and kind of stock up my house and be driving a little less. Um, the second thing for me, I would say, hmm, you know what? You say your first thing, and then I'll think of my okay, second. Sure, sure.
0: <laughs> so, so one thing I, I, I've I've loosely contemplated, but it, it's becoming. It was gone through the years, but it's becoming—it's—it's it's gaining steam in my head, and I've been slowly executing this in, in a way: is to cut down my meat consumption. Um, so oh, yes. when I when I was a kid, I would eat beef, pork, chicken—you name it. I have since quit pork entirely. I've dramatically cut down my red meat intake, but I'm starting to think I'm not doing enough, and I'm not saying that a guilt. I just just knowing the world and how it is now that I'm not saying i want to become a vegetarian, but I could still cut down my meat intake. I, I, I don't eat. Okay. One thing I don't do, I don't eat meat at home. I'm a vegetarian at home, but when mm-hmm. I eat out, I could, I could be more selective of what I order. So maybe just being more conscious of sustainable, sustainably raised foods. So even if I am eating meat, you know, was it, where was it, you know, where, you know, where was it, sourced from you know and right so, so just paying it so even just so even if I am eating meat, just pay attention to where it's sourced you know was it grass fed this and that etc so that that would be what my my first uh and next i've been i have been it has been a work in progress i I have started doing this, and I will continue to be evolving on this, so yeah that's that's my first item,
2: yeah, I think it's really important to like. So first of all limit, second of all shop, shop local, and then third of all really be selective of the meats you are eating because some are definitely better than others. So I think that's a great answer. Yeah. Um my second thing, you know, I'm still thinking here. I think for me I really wish to find more products that I can go and refill. And I think this might just be, you know, a gap in the market at this point, but I feel like when I buy certain products that I don't really have a choice to buy, but there's not really options to, you know, buy larger items or to buy more refills. So I think, you know, maybe doing some more research with some of the products that I buy um, and seeing if there are alternative options that I've just are not aware of, or if there are ways to have like refills done for some of the cleaning products that I use, that kind of thing. So that's my second. Yeah.
0: I have a similar answer. I mean, it's kind of similar. Um, one thing I, I – I, 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 Costco is kind of a, a – uh, it's a victim here, of what I'm about to say. When I, so I like to eat cereal every morning. Yeah. And so I've started to shop for cereals that do not come in that plastic lining.
2: Good for you. Yeah, that's incredible.
0: Yeah. And so like, that means I have to go to Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, which is fine. Uh, but that means I'm not going to Costco. You know, you go to Costco, you get that that double pack of raisin bran, for example, and it comes out of plastic and that unrecyclable plastic bag. Yeah, so I, I, I I am vowing to to no longer get cereals that are packed in plastic. Basically, just packed in the in the in the carbon box.
2: Yeah, um, in Canada we have a place. It's called Bulk Barn. Um, So you just go and you kind of take your own containers and you fill them up and they measure it and you kind of order your things that way. So I like to do that when I can, for sure. Nice. Nice. That's a good second item. My last item. um, You know, I do try as much as I can to reduce my water usage. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned to you earlier, you know, we don't use our sprinklers whatsoever. Um, You know, we go with nature. We do have solar panels on our house, so that was the first thing we did when we bought our house was get solar energy. Um, I'm trying to think of a third one.
0: Well, I think reducing water uses is, is, is good. I think that you just keep it at that. I think that's great. I mean, yeah, that, that's an ongoing I that's thing. Fun. That's not a one-time commitment, right?
2: Yeah. No, that's great. I think yeah. That's and, I, great to...
0: and before I share my third one, I'm, I want to I want to I want to piggyback on you on that one because uh, obviously it's a goal. That's a similar goal I have. And to, to tie it to, uh, like, in the next few months, I'm going to be shopping for a new home here in Austin. And I am going, definitely, two things are going to factor into my purchase is buying a house that will not require me to use a lot of water. So that would include, you know, finding a house that doesn't have much of a lawn. Maybe there's, you know, drought-resistant plants or, or, or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm contemplating solar panels as well. So that that'll be something else. I- I- I would consider,
2: you know, anyone listening, I highly recommend solar panels. Um, They're just, yeah, they're incredible. Our energy bills compared to our neighbors, our neighbors right now have electric bills that are in the 300, $400 range because here in Florida, it's 90 degrees out. It's hot overnight, still in the eighties, you know, up to 95 degrees. So you need to keep your AC running all the time. It needs to be pretty low and um, and yeah, just like, even if you're just looking to save some money, like, you know, you don't care about the environment, but you want to save some money, get some solar panels on your house and you know, whatever you're producing. So obviously you're producing energy and it's going back to the energy company and they actually, for what you don't use, will give you money back at the end of the year. So it's, it's uh, helpful for the environment, helpful for your, your bank account. And right now what we're paying per month is just a fee for the hookup for, for the electric company. We could have batteries, but we don't have batteries. We're looking at buying them. Mm -hmm. And then our, our monthly cost is a set amount every month. So we know every month what our electric bill will be because it's just the cost of the solar panels that we financed. Yeah. Um, So highly, highly, if you're able to, you know, and I think most communities are able to Highly yep. recommend the solar panel life.
0: Yeah. So to finish with what, what, what I, I didn't mention my, my third one, and it, this one is water related too, uh, to not buy water, water bottles as much. Uh, to, oh my
2: to gosh. Yeah. Don't my do
0: it. You know, I, I have my own 40 ounce that I use. So that, that's something I've been trying to work really hard is to, to take my own water and my, and my own equipment instead of buying a water bottle. And this kind of touches to you talk about reuse and recycling. Uh, so yeah it, it would be to 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 not buy water bottles as much as as, as unless i have to in a situation where i have to i don't have choice Different story but to limit that i'm not saying i have to cut down entirely but at least limiting the amount of water bottles i buy what i'm out
2: mm-hmm. absolutely
0: yeah well so that's
2: <laughs> yeah this was great dana great podcast
0: yeah i agree i mean i wish mary were here and shout out to our third our third arm our third chair here uh Mary Carrion, who is on vacation, we hope to have her back next week.
2: Yes, traveling. She's traveling. Absolutely.
0: She's traveling. I, actually, I don't actually I don't know she's on vacation. I know she's traveling uh, to Northern California. She might be traveling for work, actually.
2: Yep, so, I think so. I think it's yeah. a work trip.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, so we'll help. We miss you, time. Mary. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we'll have Mary back soon next week, and we'll we'll talk about maybe maybe we never know. We, Maybe when we have our, our editorial meeting next week, maybe we, we, we chat about doing another series of quick hits just to catch up on the news.
2: Yeah, why not? I like yeah. this format. It's yeah. great.
0: Yeah. So just to round out and we'll wrap up here, uh, you can find Erased on all of your uh, podcast platforms, be it iTunes or Google or Amazon. Pretty much everywhere podcasts are available. You can also find Erased on on all social media being facebook twitter and instagram just search for erased on instagram i'm sorry on facebook and then on twitter and instagram you can search for erased byro. and so you can find us there obviously you can find me on twitter my handle is at parimola rohit dana do you want to be found on social media
2: Sure. Yeah. I'm at Dana Stephanie, D-A-N-A-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, Instagram and Twitter.
0: Nice.
2: I do post quite a bit about the environment.
0: Yes, you do. And I, I honestly, I, I, if I could add a fourth thing to my list, I, I, it's to post more about the environment and educate people because you do you do a great job of that. I, oh,
1: thank I will, you. I,
0: I will tell you, I learn a lot just by following you. So uh, you're one of the best social media posts, uh, one of the best social media people I, I'm in touch with. So Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for all you do on that. And I, I, it's an example for all of us to follow.
2: Thank you very much. I try so, my best.
0: Yes. Well, you are doing your best and <laughs> we are do our best with this podcast. And so thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with with more environmental news. And until then, signing off on behalf of Dana and Mary at Aerials here at Erased, this is Pimo. Have a good rest of the day.